0: My name is Dick, I'm alcoholic. My home group is the Northwest Group in Atlanta, Georgia, that meets on Tuesday night. We have a Big Book meeting, Friday night we have a STEP meeting, and uh, we've got a pretty good group of people there, the uh, Big Book meeting, which is on Tuesday night, um, had about, when I joined about five years ago, had uh, maybe four or five people. And uh, we started adding a person here, and now this is one of those groups where they have a discussion group here, and then they have a progressive discussion group, which I'm not sober enough to go into, and then they have, then they have, then they have the big book group. And the big book was the smallest of those groups, and now the big book is uh, at least it rivals the main discussion for the largest. And I'm glad to see that. And we've had a no- number of those kind of meetings pop up um, around the Atlanta area. Um, that has been. A big blessing to me, the gift that I was given when I came to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the longer that I stay sober, the more I realize I was given an absolute perfect gift when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I was assigned a sponsor uh, before I even got to my hometown, Louisville, Kentucky, and his name was Jack Sullivan. He died a couple of years ago, and some of you have heard him speak, and um I called Jack when I got to the city limits. And from that day forward, I had nothing but a group of men who, and women, but these men, the men worked with me and, uh, who worked with me would do, do anything at all to make sure that I stayed sober. And to make sure that I knew that the two things I absolutely had to do in order to stay sober were to trust God and clean house. And I think sometimes you ask in a meeting now, of the two things you must do to stay sober and they say don't drink and go to meetings but that is not what the big book of alcoholics anonymous says because you can be around the fellowship for some period of time but if you don't trust god and clean house your life won't change and if your life does not change sooner or later you will get tired of this fellowship and you will leave and the other thing that you do once you have learned how to trust god is to serve others and that's what everybody in this room is doing and everybody in this room is doing that as i understand it you're going through big changes here and go into the third legacy for your election tomorrow. And that kind of, even though you disagree, to have that kind of love in this fellowship, that's the way God intended us to work. What you saw on September 11th was exactly what happens when only one group of people thinks they are the ones that know what God wants for them. And in my opinion, and this is a little off of AA, but I don't think there's another country where Alcoholics Anonymous could have been founded. The very principles that AA was founded upon are the basis for the country that we live in. And I am so glad that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and live in the United States of America when we have the kind of things going on that are going on in the world right now today. As I said, I got uh, uh, first let me thank uh, John and Robert and John we had a whole table full of John's at dinner tonight uh, and we went to uh, Redbone what was it? Redbone Alley and uh, shrimp and grits and I appreciate it and it was a great meal and I, I appreciate the hospitality and the invitation to share um, I got sober as I mentioned in Louisville Kentucky and Louisville Kentucky is actually the place where I was born um, I come from what is known as a functional family there are alcoholics to do And my father was uh, an Army, pilot, Army Air Corps pilot. That's where I was born, an Army Air Corps base. Um, later he became a test pilot. I lived in two places in my youth, Kentucky and Virginia, moved back to Kentucky. Um, and the things that I was taught when I was a kid, which are the basis for many of the things in our country, are the same things that I was a Boy Scout. I was involved in Little League. I was involved in YMCA. I was involved in, I went to a Baptist uh, church Sunday, uh, 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 we had uh, uh, the family over every Sunday, and this should have been an idyllic uh, place for a kid to grow up. Uh, I was a clean-cut kid and my dad was a colonel, and there's no reason why um, I should have felt the way that I did, but I can tell you that, you know, if you remember, for those of you who were Boy Scouts, and I don't have to bring it out because I, I forget this thing, but it says. In the Boy Scout handbook, it says, We're trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. What an order. (laughs) I couldn't go through with it. For whatever reason, even though I was given every gift that you can be given, I never wanted for anything. We didn't have lots of money, but my dad was in the military. I always felt guilty. When I went in that Baptist church, there was something I was doing that wasn't right. And I didn't even do anything. I mean, there was something I was thinking that wasn't right. And I always felt like there was something in me that if these people outside of here knew what I was really like in Boy Scouts, YMCA, in in any of these functions, they would not accept me. And I cannot tell you why that was. But my whole life at that point then became revolved. My reality, the place that I escaped was into TV and film. And I grew up Opie and I are the same age and I watched uh Ozzie and Harriet, Father Knows Best. Again, every one of these television programs taught you about virtue, they taught you about honesty, they taught you about all the things that we learned in the Boy Scout handbook. And for whatever reason, again, I felt like I couldn't measure up. I saw the way they were on T V. You know, even the beaver got it and I couldn't get it. So so I I, I proceed at this point. The first 14 years of my life had very few splashes of color. To me, it was almost like I was in black and white, and I was this—I was covered with this dark cloud of guilt, and this dark cloud of, of uh, I didn't know anything about self-esteem one way or the other. All I knew was I felt like I wasn't going to cut it, and if they knew, I'd be in trouble. And I can remember the first film that I saw with my parents in 1957 at a, a drive-in movie theater. We went to see um, uh, The Ten Commandments. And I made two decisions. One, there was a God, because I saw what Charleston Heston did to Yul Brenner. And secondly, I made this decision that I wanted to be around film because it just opened up this whole new world for me, and it was in color, and it was on this big, huge screen, and I absolutely loved it. And from that point on, everything that I saw on a screen seemed, that was my church. That was where I listened. I was afraid to listen elsewhere. And so I felt like I was in the black and white world until I took my very first drink. Another guy named Dave and I got his older brother to get us a six-pack of beer and a half-pint of gin. And we were camped out the night before a Babe Ruth League baseball game. I drank the beer. He drank the gin. And suddenly, I had the same experience everybody in this room has felt. And it was when I poured that beer inside of me. All of a sudden, I just opened up and blossomed, and it was just like that scene where Moses parts the Red Sea, and, and all of a sudden, everything was in color, and I felt big and huge and filled up, and so we went on an adventure, and that's one of the things that drinking gave to me was an adventure. We, we hitchhiked up to a White Castle. White Castle is one of those places you go at 3 o'clock in the morning when you're drunk and eat those little square hamburgers.
1: <laughs>
0: we went there at midnight my friend had never had a drink before so he drank the gin and when we got up there he was starting to feel a little woozy and they had a stainless steel counter and we sat at the counter and I had seen in Perry Mason that if you had too much to drink if you would order a cup of coffee it would sober you up so I ordered him a cup of coffee but it didn't have the desired effect and he threw up all down the stainless counter If you want to find a louisville city policeman at midnight the best place to go is the white castle so they came down and asked me what was wrong with my friend i said oh he's just had a little bit too much to drink how old is he 14 how old are you 14 so i was in louisville city jail four hours after i took my first drink and that was pretty much the end of my social drinking i drank as much as i could whenever i could And I didn't care about the consequences. In fact, when I came in here, one of the things they talked about was that this was that once you took the first drink, you never knew where you were going to end up. But if the alternative was being in this bored, Baptist, Sunday school existence or spending some time in jail now and then, I took the spending time in jail now and then. That was That was more of a life to me. The second thing that happened was I was smart. I went to an advanced program but there were kids that were smarter I started uh, at quarterback on the football teams but there were kids that were better I there were all kinds of things I was good at but there was always somebody who was better but I was the only kid in my class who had been locked up when we were in the ninth grade
1: <laughs>
0: I was the only kid who got locked up at my senior prom for two counts of assault and battery on a police officer and when they took me down to jail um, I was put in a jail it was me and seven black Panthers who were in Louisville Kentucky and had been caught with a large stash of arms to disrupt the Kentucky Derby so was seven black Panthers me and my little powder blue tuxedo I'm in my fifties now so you can imagine what I look like and nobody else had that story and that became my red badge of courage the fact that I was wilder than There was a film called American Graffiti, and in it, Richard Dreyfuss plays this kid who's really just kind of a, you know, just a general kid, but he always gets hooked up with the gangs and everything else. And that was me. I didn't really fit in, but that's where I was. I can remember uh, on one occasion I went to work. uh, This was after I'd gotten out of college, and I go to work, and uh, there were a group of people, and they were talking about the cocktail party the night before or what somebody's kids had done and I had gone to a little place I hung out at the whistle stop I just come back from my second tour in Vietnam just gotten back to the United States and I was working in the advertising business I, I work writing and, and producing film that's basically what I did and I was working in this business and uh, at night I would put on my blue jeans and my jacket from Vietnam I go to this little place and there was a girl that I dated now and then she was a well-weathered woman who um, <laughs> who I got together with occasionally for recreational purposes and so she was there, and she introduced me to her brother. her brother was a Louisville outlaw, which is like the Hells Angels, their motorcycle group there. So they all came back to my place. We partied. We were shotgunning and doing all kinds of things at this party. And I had to go to bed about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning because I had to get up at 7 to go to my staff meeting at the advertising agency where I worked. And that's the way it always was. I had this one world over here, another world over there. And I felt like I was two people that were torn apart. And the one thing I know that we try for in this program, everybody I have ever worked with and everybody I've ever known who came into this program was looking for some integrity in their life again. And I think we are a group of people who are bound together by the fact that we cannot, for whatever reason, accept all the gifts that God has to give us. And if we would, we wouldn't need to escape into alcohol. Alcohol is just a symptom. But for whatever reason, we cannot accept all the gifts that God has laid out before us. And I didn't know how to do that. And you taught me how to do that through the steps, through the fellowship, through this program. But at this time, I had no idea. I went off to, I went to college. This is typical of college. I went to college, and I had a, uh, I was in my second or third semester. Uh, I was editor of the college newspaper. I was, uh had a, uh, that particular semester, I think I had a an A minus going into midterms. I got drunk, missed finals, dropped out that's pretty much the way it was I quit at everything I never finished anything everything was like the Big Book says we're like an actor on a stage and that's the way I was It was like a play and then I'd vanish and go someplace else I learned a lie about everything all my idols were writers Hemingway Fitzgerald all of these people and they all turned out later as I found out to be people who drank like us and who ended up killing themselves by shooting themselves with a shotgun in the mouth or Tennessee Williams choking to death on a uh, top of a medicine bottle, but at the time that isn't what I was paying attention to. But I went through. I, I was. I think I was in my Hemingway period in college, and it says we sat, we drank, we enlisted. So I went down and had a conversation with a couple of recruiters and decided while I was drunk to sign up so I wouldn't miss out on it. And um, uh, and I had and and amazingly I had two tours in Vietnam and I enjoyed both of them because I found. Many of the people over there drank like I did. Uh, And also I found another rush, which was adrenaline. If you go into combat and you come back out, it's like it's a rush. You survive. And at this point, I don't think I had very much respect at all for my life. I don't think I really cared whether I lived or died. I think the fact that I felt no fear when I was drinking and when I was doing these things was my only relief. Because if I stopped and looked at myself sober, I couldn't take the fear. I became that scared little boy scout again, but alcohol solved that problem. It was my best friend, and it kept me going, and it kept me into lots of adventures. Um, you know, here for a, for a little Baptist guy, I had met this girl. I had, I loved to fall in love. I had met this girl while I was home on leave, and I had fallen in love with her. And I was getting out of the service, and she and I decided that we were going to get married. We just had to decide what to do with her husband, and so. <laughs> And he was an, he was an attorney for the Nixon administration. And I came back and we had a few, uh, uh, a few meetings. He tried to break into her apartment one night because he got kind of angry. I went after him with a shotgun. He came after me with a subpoena. And I don't know why, but somehow this relationship where she and I we had the, the wedding date was October the 24th and somehow, she decided to hold off for a minute because she wasn't quite sure there was something in my character she wasn't quite sure about. <laughs> well, if you're an alcoholic, you, you take every opportunity you can. So one of the things that I had worked with her on was when I was in Vietnam, there had been a, uh, we'd seen Playboy before, but this was Penthouse, and it was a magazine that I hadn't seen before I got to Vietnam, and they I think they almost gave it out free over there, but um, in it there was a letter, and it, there was a thing called a Manage Choice. And this is where one guy, two girls, and this seemed like a great idea to me. And I brought it up several times to my fiancé when I came back, but she wasn't going to have anything to do with it. So once she kind of asked me to move out for a short time period, I thought, this is my opportunity to maybe spread my rings, try a few things, and uh, go have one. So now the problem is this is back in the 60s in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a pretty conservative place. be like Columbia um, in the 60s and and so uh, who do you ask about those kind of things i don't so in my mind i thought well now if i'm going to have two women i should go to a lesbian bar and so (laughs) so i i asked around i asked quietly around and um so i find my way into this place um in uh, down in an entertainment section of louisville and i go down there and i walk in and they've got a piano bar, and I I hit it off with this woman at the piano bar, and we're having a great time, and we're drinking, and and I'm, I drank whiskey like everybody else from Kentucky bourbon whiskey, and I smoked about four packs of cigarettes a day, and we're staying in summertime and all this stuff, it, but it's obviously no sparks there, and uh, so um, this was a, a large woman, and so so I so I and I but towards the end of the night, all of a sudden I look up and there was a door almost like from the heavens, and it opened up from an upper floor which I hadn't seen before. And this crowd emerges and there's this absolute stunningly beautiful redhead who comes down the steps and she's just moving like this and it's almost like one of those scenes from the movie and and remember uh, everything about movies grabbed me when I saw the graduate 10 times when it came out and uh, uh, shortly thereafter started smoking and had an affair with an older woman <laughs> she'd be about 80 now and so. So I'm, 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 I look, and here comes this stunningly beautiful redhead, and I move towards her, and she moves towards me. And I don't even remember what we said, but we're kissing, we're making out, we're holding each other, and uh, I'm in love. I, I was just, I, and, and after a while, I remember what I'd gone there for. So I said, listen, you don't have a friend who might be able to join us tonight. And uh, her name was Erica, and she said, um, she said, why don't we get to know each other tonight, and maybe tomorrow uh, we'll add somebody. I thought well this is my kind of woman so we go back to my place and I lived in kind of a conservative place where we all knew each other and this was on Saturday night and on Sunday morning we were out there playing volleyball at the pool and you know you can hear him pop in the the beer in the morning and getting started and uh, so I was not I was a snob about drugs I didn't want to lose control I drank a quarter bourbon a day but I didn't want to lose control and so I ended up I, this this beautiful woman and I are holding hands making and and she brought out a pill i would never seen before a great big pill called a Quaalude which is for those of you who don't know what it is it's a horse tranquilizer (laughs) and she took the Quaalude and about that time um, two things happened one she passed out and I found something I wasn't looking for And after three or four days of that, I said, this is not right. I didn't tell that story until I was about 15 years sober. (laughs) But I'm a confident heterosexual now. So... So that night it's like you know days and wine and roses is a movie that i saw probably a hundred times when i was drunk and and there's a scene where jack lemon comes running up and he hits this glass window and it smashes his face and he goes flying back and and he just smiles and laughs and so that night that's the way i was when i was drinking everything was funny and so that night i just i was laughing and everything else and i go to bed and i didn't have black house as much as i had uh gray up so the next morning and and i'm kind of coming to and now, Erica, um, who I, I guess was a very nice guy, uh, Erica <laughs> is, is, uh, is no longer in drag, and there's a guy in my apartment, and I'm confused.
1: <laughs>
0: Nothing in the Boy Scout handbook
1: <laughs> or any of the
0: Opie episodes had prepared me for this. But I managed to get him home and back outside to the volleyball game before anybody found me out. And um, so, but those were the kind of adventures that I went on when I was drinking. And and so I once wrote my sister this letter. Was my life unmanageable? Of course not. And I once I once wrote this letter to my sister about the reason that I drank so much was because, I mean doctors talked to me the the family doctor talked to me about my drinking when I was 17. It's not like it's marginal. And uh, I was arrested six times my senior year in high school. So, but I once wrote her this letter that the reason that I drank so much was because, as a writer, I I had to experience life, and I was so sensitive, and I felt so much, that I felt more than other people. And I really needed to, 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 I I know. I I don't know what
1: I would... uh, how you could
0: say I was full of anything other than, but that was it. <laughs> but that was my life. That was the way I lived. And I would go through short spurts where I would do very well at something. I, when I got back here and I got into the advertising business, um, I wrote and produced uh, some uh national award-winning, some Clio award-winning uh commercials, some Coca-Cola commercials that you've seen. Um, and I was making a lot of money. I was making a lot of money despite the fact that I was drinking all the time, that I was, my life was out of control, that I had given up almost every principle I'd been taught. Those principles that I'd been taught when I was a kid were still deep inside of me, but I had managed to sedate myself enough that I didn't care about any of them. They weren't important anymore. And so, the things that I blocked out of my mind, I remembered the funny stories, but I, I blocked out the night that I got back from Vietnam and I was staying at my parents' house and I ran through all the booze in their house and I needed to go out. My dad knew I was drunk and he didn't want me to go out. And my family, my mother, and my sister, my brother watched on the landing of the steps as I knocked my dad down to go outside. And other times when I saw my parents cry because they loved me and they couldn't understand why I was doing what I was doing. Or when that woman who did love me, uh, who wanted to marry me in spite of all my problems, uh, finally left and said, uh, I cannot stand to see you like this anymore. When I almost drowned, we went out on a lake and I almost drowned and almost took two people with me. Those were the things that I didn't remember. Those are the things that I blocked out of my life. And in the last two years of my drinking, they were accelerated. I went to a doctor and told him I had a problem with um, vertigo and with my inner ear and all and apparently I, I, I do have a problem with that but he gave me 60 milligrams of allium a day to help with that and I'm very thankful for that because I believe that accelerated uh, the disease within me and I believe that helped get me here that much sooner because I didn't stop drinking I just drank and took the 60 milligrams of allium a day and I was a daily drinker and a maintenance drinker, and I had to drink morning, noon, and night. And on top of it, I would go on benches. And finally, I got fired from this job where they didn't care if I drank at all. Drinking wasn't the issue, but showing up was. And I got fired from that job, and it was a perfect job. And they finally offered to get me some help for my drinking, and I said, no thanks, I don't have a problem. And they gave me a big severance pay package and I took that package and I tried to impress people. I had lost the ability to control my kidneys and my bowels so I would, uh, I was wearing primarily tan and yellow pants. Uh, kind of color complementary if you're gonna do yourself. And, and, uh, and I would be out someplace and I'd be drinking and I'd sneeze or I'd move the wrong way and I'd lose control of my kidneys or bowels. And I couldn't tell when I started drinking in the morning uh, or And there was no morning. I'd pass out, come to, and there was no night or day at this point. Uh, how long I was going to be able to last, whether it was going to be two hours or whether it was going to be four hours or whatever before I had to go, quote, take a nap. So I could no longer work. I started to hear things in the heating ducts. And all of this, and I was 27 years old. But I had been drinking non stop. From the very first time I took a drink at the age of 14. And I finally, having no way to earn any money, having not seen my family in about a year and a half or two years, having estranged myself from them, I'm the one that did it, having pushed myself away from them, having pushed myself away from this woman who loved me, having pushed myself away from the people who tried to help me at work. Even the alcoholics that I ran with wouldn't have anything to do with me at this point. And I lived in this uh, apartment. And I got evicted from the apartment. And I went up to I could no longer drive at this point. And I went up to this liquor store where I had probably written 30 bad checks. And I went up there and the guy says, "I'm going to take this from you, but I can't take any more because uh, we know these checks are no good." And I bought a gallon of uh, bourbon. It was a great big round. And I walked back the three blocks back to my apartment. And. As I walked back towards my apartment, which I was being evicted from the next day, I tripped and that bottle fell and broke and spilled all over the floor. And I felt more helpless at that moment than I did in a firefight in Vietnam, more helpless than I had at ever any point in my whole life, and more hopeless. And the one thing I had left was a weapon, and I got and put a bullet in the chamber and got ready to pull the trigger. And suddenly, in this numb body, came all this rage, and I started screaming and yelling at the top of my lungs at God. Because I hated Him for what was happening to me. I hated Him for having this, for for never letting me realize what I wanted to be in life. And I broke, and and that that cursing of God went to God help me. And I started crying out, "God God help me, God help me, God help me, God help me. And his answer to me came in the form of a just a, a minute of peace where I saw that scene from Days of Wine and Roses where Jack Klugman walks up to Jack Lemmon and says, I understand you need help. I'm from Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I did. I walked up to a street corner from there and called Alcoholics Anonymous. This was in Atlanta. And a woman named Helen, who is still at our central office, answered the phone and Helen was live, and if you don't think what you do in service is important, these are all the people that it took to get me sober. It took a guy named Charles who had spoken to me seven years earlier when I came back from Vietnam as an outside speaker, which was coordinated by a local intergroup at a military base, and he spoke and he told his story. And I sat in the back of the room having had a couple of drinks, and a Marine gunny and I sat back in the back of the room, both having shared shared a joint and, and had and had a, a few drinks and listened to this guy. Well, we didn't say one word, but everything this guy said sunk in. And if you're speaking in an outside place and you don't get any response, don't worry, you're planting seeds. And that was seven years before. And then I had seen Days of Wine and Roses I don't know how many times, and that's like a living AA meeting. And the guy who wrote it, JPM, M, was a member of our fellowship who stayed sober and wrote that I was going to go back and shoot myself. And she said, Honey, you stay right there. I've got a guy coming out to meet you. And she held me on the phone. And she got on the other phone and called somebody, and this guy came out to meet me. And he had read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because he didn't, I would not have stood for any kind of criticism or lecture or any kind of, approach like that because that I was that's what I was so tired of all my life. I was scared to death of God and scared to death of not being enough. And this man told me about himself, and then he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an alcoholic, and I started crying. He said, no, what do you do for a living? And I told him a couple things, and he said, well, God must have given you a lot of talent for you to get paid to do that. And it was the first nice thing that anybody had said to me in about a year because he saw through me, through these stained pants that I was wearing, through the smell of me, through the red eyes, and saw that I was a child of God inside all of this, and the alcoholism was a temporary disease that there was a remedy for, that there was a a solution for, because he had found it in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he shared what had happened with him. And I turned everything I had, the most complete third step. I saw him, I took a second. When I got on my knees with that gun, I took that first and and with him, I took the third step and turned everything I had, which was me, over to him. and he put me in his car and took me to of course, I was still a complete liar, and he took me to a place to dry out. and I told him I had insurance, which I didn't and and i i i I get to. They just come out with ATM machines. This was June the 8th, 1977. And they just come out with ATM machines. And this ATM machine, he stops and he wants to go get $20. And he had just bought a brand new car. And this guy didn't have a lot of money. He worked for the railroad. He lived in a small apartment with a hot plate. But this was his pride and joy of this car that he had. And so he stopped and said... Will you be okay? I'm going to get $20. So he goes to get the $20, and and this is a hot day, June the 8th, and in the time that it took for him to go get that, the sticker was still on the side of his car. I threw up down the inside of his window. And when he came back, there was no irritation, there was no anger. He put his arm around me and said, Are you okay? Because he knew that without Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't have cars, we don't have jobs, we don't have lives, and unless we help other alcoholics, none of it means anything anyway. And he took me to my first meeting, and he took me to a place where I could dry out. And even there, with that time, it was a, it was a place where you could dry out, but the people that were there were members of Alcoholics Anonymous. When they found out I didn't have any insurance, they said, "You can pay us back later." And they got me dried out and sent me off to. Jack and told me to call him as soon as I got to the city limits of Louisville, and I did. And once I was there, I was taken in by a group of men that made sure that I knew that that it was my obligation to work the program and it was my privilege to be a member of the fellowship and there was a difference. That in this fellowship, we love each other, we hug each other, we have all kinds of joy, we share sadness. We also know the power that's here. But we don't really discover that power until we by ourselves, with the help of others, work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because that power does not come into our lives until we have walked through those as the big book tells us to. And they stuck with me. And I was nuts. I was I was not one of those people who came in here that you had to convince. I absolutely did want to change my life. I absolutely did want what want what you had. But I had brain damage, so it took me about eight or nine months to be able to learn how to read again. So in that Temporary period, I always had some place to stay or some place. It just worked out somehow. If you are a member of this fellowship, it says if we kept close to God and performed his work well, and that means if you're new and you're nuts like I was, you just kind of do what everybody tells you to do or your sponsor tells you to do, and it will work out. Somehow it just works out. So I'm in there, and but I went to ten meetings a week. I went, they asked me how often I drank, and I drank 24 hours a day, so I only went to a couple of meetings on three or four days, and another meeting on, but I was hanging out with these guys, and when I was about nine or ten months sober, I was in an AA luncheon, and at this AA luncheon, the, the job I did up until then was kind of pouring coffee, and cleaning up, and at this AA luncheon, uh, I was whining. I was, uh, my mind was coming back, so I was whining now that I didn't have a place to stay of my own, and I didn't have a car, and I didn't have, this, and, and. So, uh, so, and I was at this lunch, and all these guys were old-timers. Carter, Mike, uh, England, they're all people that, they're all people that, many of them are deceased now, but they had 30, 40 uh, years at the time. And so they're sitting around, and they're talking about golf, and Hilton Head, and things like this, and, and I'm thinking, these people don't even know What's going on here? This is an emergency. so 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 at at this luncheon they stop and say, one of the guys after the lunch says, "Why don't you come by and see me in the office tomorrow?" So I went by and saw him the next day, and within twenty four hours, I was the press secretary for the mayor. Now, this may seem like a strange job to give somebody who's a new alcoholic, but I can if you are here and you're fairly new, Here's the way it works. God gives you what you need in spite of what you think you need.
1: <laughs>
0: I thought I needed a job to make me humble. I, I thought I was the lowest form of life my whole life. That isn't what I needed. I had been a liar and developed into a class A liar uh, simply because it allowed me to tell you whatever I wanted you to think about me. Well, there is one job at that, at that time that you couldn't have and lie and tell three stories in a row to three different people. That's press secretary because the reporters all talk to each other so I had to learn how to one keep it simple not give my opinion about everything just tell the facts and two, tell the truth and be consistent which was a whole new concept that i would never practiced
1: <laughs>
0: but that's what God gave me and that experience that he gave me was what enabled me two years ago when I'm standing in a parking lot up in Akron while I'm working on a film when one of my pigeons calls me and says I've got to get out of here but I don't know how to do it And, uh, I need a place to stay and I bum, ba, bum, ba, bum and the cycle goes around and I tell him my story. Because God allowed that to happen to me so I could share it with another alcoholic. And so that he could make something of me. I believe that none of us are good or bad. I don't even believe that, that this guy, this, these group of terrorists were born bad. I believe we become one way or another depending upon which power we turn ourselves over to. And the power that is in this room, the power that got Bill and Dr. Bob sober, the power that gets us sober, is that power for goodness. And that's the power that came into my life as a result of me sticking with you guys. And so I was walked through the steps. And the fourth time I went through the house cleaning, the first three times I go through it's like who this left with and who I stole money from and a few things like that. The fourth time, I'm at a Kentucky State conference, and I look up there, and I was... I'd been secretary, IGR, uh, alternate GSR, GSR, state PI chair, all this kind of stuff, and I'm sitting up there, and I'm looking, and they had a sketch up there, and there was a bottle of bourbon, and for some reason that triggered it, and I was just, all this rage came out. And I'd done three the house cleanings, but like it says, I hadn't gotten to the root causes. When I got to the root causes, I resented and hated God, Jesus Christ, my father, because he was gone all the time. He was a pilot. I don't know what else he was going to do. My, my mother, because she was nervous, her father was a coal miner, she was in Harlan County, Kentucky. I mean, on down the line, I resented all these women I'd spent all my time and energy running after, and, and they didn't respond the way I wanted them to. I resented all these men who were, who had more money, were better looking, who were tougher, who got the women that I spent all the time. There was nobody, there was nobody that I didn't resent. And the reason that I resented everybody was because I was afraid that you, that, that you, Whether or not you accepted me was how I validated my whole life. And that's not the way God creates us. I am fine just as I am sitting here. The same height, the same talent. All I had to do was find out how to take the talent I've got and use it so it helps you a little bit. And I don't always know how that works. I was put in service from the very beginning. And I never went after what I thought I was going to get. I was going to try to be something else, and they put me on the PI. And then I moved from Kentucky to Georgia, and I decided I wanted to be on PI, because now I'm a PI expert. And so I go down there, and they said, well, we already got some PIs. You stand for uh, DCM. And I was a GSR at that point. I said, well, right. and I became a, a DCM. And after that, I didn't have, I couldn't stand for delegate. So I said, well, I'll never be delegate, but, you know, and so, and I got a little burned out on service, and that was it. About... Two years ago, exactly, my zone had gone dead. They hadn't had a DCM for a couple of years. It had just gone, nobody was doing anything. Nobody was going to the assembly. Nobody was communicating. The word wasn't going either way. And so a couple of people asked me if I would go in and service DCM because I'd been one before and try to get that zone revived. And I said, well, and at that point, I was an alternate GSR for my group just so I could sub for the GSR. So I said, okay. So I went from the alternate GSR. I went to the meeting. I got elected DCM. And two days and two weeks later, they had a meeting of all the Metro Atlanta DCMs, and they have their own chairman for all the Metro Atlanta. So I went there, kept my mouth shut, and they elected me chairman of the Metro DCMs. So two weeks ago, we had the same thing that you're going to have tomorrow. We had an election. So I love the archives. I love the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the program. So I was finagling so I could be named archivist. But I got elected alternate delegate while I was waiting to be, be uh, <laughs> become archivist. I never get what I think. I never get where I think I'm going. But God knows what I need better than I do. And this is another. I mean, my 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 heart's desire back, you know, when I was a DCM 12, 14 years ago was to be an alternate delegate. But I didn't think I could do it at that point. But if you want something, if it's your heart's desire, if it's God's time. And it's the right thing. He gives it to you. When I was making those amends I was talking about and going back after doing that complete fifth step, I was making amends to a Baptist church where I had badmouthed them all my life and talked about how hypocritical they were. And I got up in front of them like this on a Sunday night, and I shared with them what I had done, what I had said, and I asked for their forgiveness. And from that group of people, I found a lot of unconditional love and found that the ideas I had about this group of people was wrong. And I was welcomed there again, and I fit in. And like the steps do for us, I started to walk back into life and fit in. And I had been working on my own to do this thing where I could get a wife. And I'd been doing it my own way, and kind of cocktail napkin, you'd write this girl over here, and I like this girl over there. And nothing was worth it. We had occasional short relationships, but nothing any long term. So I go and I make amends. And in the congregation that night was a beautiful young blonde. And she and I have been married for 18 years now. So if you want to meet a spouse, work the steps. (laughs) My experience is that every good thing that has come to me has come to me not as a result of my own sitting and thinking and planning it out, It has come to me as a result of, like the Big Book says, if we kept close to him and performed his work well, he provided what we needed. We had a new employer. It it never works the way I think it's going to work. If I do something, God provides what I need. I wanted to do a film. I've done all these other subject matters and television programs, and I wanted to do a film about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So two years ago, my assignment is to make sure that one of the speakers gets a cheeseburger at Denny's at 1 o'clock in the morning for the Atlanta Roundup. So I take this guy over there, and it turns out to be the guy who, one of whom, who put up their homes and bought the home where Alcoholics Anonymous began, uh, up in Akron, Ohio. And that's where Bill and Bob lived in the early months of this program and where they called on Bill Dotson, the third member of our program, and where he stayed with them. And it's a modest house, but if you walk in there, you can—that that is the spiritual beginning of our fellowship. One drunk calling on another. And so this guy had helped resurrect that house and make it open to the AA community. It's open 364 days a year. He said, we need a film. We were just talking. We need a film about Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, well, that's what I do. So, of course, you know, the way AA is, I checked him out to make sure he was with the house, and he checked me out to make sure I was a, that I really wasn't a film business. And after we got that taken care of, he called back and he said, okay, we need to get this done. And I said, well, we'll need about, I'll donate the production, but we're going to need about 40000 in expense money. And he said, oh, we'll never get that. We can't even sell a raffle ticket. So he goes out. I said, if it's meant to be a guy, we'll provide it. He goes out to Arizona. He's talking to some people out there. A the guy gives him a check. He, he comes back thinking he's got a check for $200, and somebody had given him a check for $20,000. And it was a member of the fellowship who had been very blessed financially who knew the situation and believed in it. And we knew we were going to do a film and the film was introduced at founders day of uh, last year and introduced in Minneapolis and it is a half an hour film called a house full of miracles and it's the story of the beginning of this program of one miracle after another of how God put this program together in spite of the character defects of Bill and Bob and, and all these other people they were they were great men but they had but singularly by themselves Bill would have franchised this, and it wouldn't have gone anyplace. Doctor Bob would have, would have it would just now be getting to Cincinnati because he was not he didn't carry it out there. But each one of these people had the attributes that were needed to form this program. And even in the way God brought these two people together, you know, Bill Wilson's father left him when he was seven years old. He, he all his life he was trying to prove that he was good enough, and he's this tall, good-looking man who's got a lot of charisma. But underneath he doesn't believe it and he all his life the people he looked up to were doctors his first girlfriend Bertha Bamford was a doctor now he marries Lois and Lois's father is a doctor now he was a member of the Oxford group trying to get sober to the Oxford group and that's where Abby called him and in, in the Oxford group they had the six steps but what was missing is working with another alcoholic he goes to Akron six months sober and he's getting ready to get drunk and by coincidence, he finds the one minister on a board outside a bar who had been involved with the Oxford group, who set that up. And that guy sets him up with a fellow named Doctor Bob Smith. Now, Doctor Bob Smith, Bill Wilson's six foot four, Doctor Bob is six foot four. Bill Wilson needed to respect the man that was going to help be his spiritual father in the fellowship because Doctor Bob really was the spiritual father. And Dr. Bob is 15 years older, came from a home that was more of a a solid home. His father was a judge. They grew up in two towns in Vermont very close to each other. How would you do that? How can you explain the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to anybody outside of here? How can you explain the many miracles that take place in this fellowship that bring us all together? How can you explain that you can hate somebody in a room because they've got the wrong opinion and the next minute you're loving them and hugging them? How can you explain the power in this program that solves every problem we've got, that brings the best out of us, that makes us who we want to be, if we were relaxed and let this program work on us? How can you explain that to somebody outside? I don't know how you can do it. It's like explaining how an atom works to a second grader. But it makes us the kind of people that are not only unafraid to live and to be everything we can be, It makes us the kind of people that other people see that in. All of you have been watching all this film work of the horrible tragedy up in New York, and you saw the picture of this lifeless priest, Father Mike, taken out of there. He was 20 years sober. He was a member of our fellowship. And he was loved and respected. And God filled him with life. And he knew how to die. And there's a time to go on, and he knew. Because he had the power, he had access to that power. And when I called Jack Sullivan to make arrangements for him to come speak two years ago at the Atlanta Roundup, and we'd already agreed that he was speaking, but to make his airfare arrangements, and he said, well, I'm not going to be able to come. Uh, I went in today and he, they found six malignant brain tumors. And he said it matter of factly, and you know what was missing? No fear. No resentment. No self-pity. He was so grateful for what the Fellowship had done for him. He was looking forward to where he was going. He had faith that where he was going was going to be a wonderful place. And he was filled with love for people in this Fellowship. And that's what I found at the end of my journey of those those 12 steps in another church. When I went to apologize to that church and there was nobody there, I found myself on the floor in front of this cathedral kneeled over, and for a long time I thought it was a spiritual experience because I felt warm and absolutely secure. But I don't think it was a spiritual experience, not in the supernatural. It was the fact that I no longer had fear, I no longer had resentment, and I no longer had self-pity. And that's the wonderful way that God has created us to live if we follow the principles of this program. And I never, ever would have found that. I I don't know why I couldn't find it. In church, I don't know why I couldn't find it in the Boy Scouts or why I couldn't find it in the YMCA. It took the journey that I took coming to this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous to find it. But I do not miss a moment of it now. Last week I was in Louisville at the National AA Archives workshop showing the film and visiting with people. And Wes comes through from Canada and he and I met when I was doing the film. And he's one of the trustees up there. And I can tell you I went back to Louisville and I went to one of those meetings where it was my, my the first group I went to. And I went in, and there were 12 people in that meeting who were there when I came in. 26 years, 30 years, up to 42 years. And not one of them has ever had a desire for a drink because they share the same journey. And in that group, there were two past delegates. And some people practice the service in this room because it's absolutely necessary to keep us together. that we have to be united. And some people don't, because I really believe the most important service work is one alcoholic calling on another. But whatever we do, or whatever you're asked to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, for me it's a privilege, it's the thing that changed my life, it's the thing that continues, and you cannot outgive the program. In my mind, everything I do comes back on me tenfold. And likewise, I went through a period when I was about 15 years sober, and I got burned out, and I just went to a few meetings and people stopped asking me to sponsor him. And I got very, very depressed, and I almost left this program. And I got a new sponsor, and he said, you've been in a spiritual wasteland. And I started listening to people who'd been around for a while. And I was almost one of those people that went back out there and look at what I would have missed. The film, the service, what John was talking about. I was up at Don C.'s 40th AA birthday and carrying Clancy around. I would have missed all that. I would have missed going to Scotland and being part of the, speaking of the All-Scottish Convention. I would have missed going to meetings in Denmark. I would have missed going to five internationals, and I would have missed all of this. I would have missed the opportunity to be with you tonight, and that's something I don't ever, ever want to miss. I thank you for your service to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thank you for what you've done for me, and I would like, at this time, when I'm going to read something that was from Bill Wilson and it's more appropriate now than it ever was and this was something that he said during the Cuban Missile Crisis and for those of you that can remember that in many ways it was worse than what we're in now because we thought all of us would be killed and we were all scared we AA, now find ourselves in a world characterized by destructive fears as never before in history but in it we nevertheless see great areas of faith and tremendous aspirations towards justice and brotherhood. No prophet can presume to say whether the world outcome will be blazing destruction or the beginning under God's intention of the brightest area yet known to mankind. We AAs can say that we do not fear the world outcome, whatever course it may take. This is because we have been enabled to deeply feel and say, we shall fear no evil. Thy will, not ours, be done. Thank you.